Father, we thank you that because you live, we can face tomorrow, that whatever troubles we face, whatever situations come in our lives, um, we can look at them and have hope because you live. And so we look forward to the new year. Um, We look forward to 2020 and seeing more of you and more of your will being done in our lives. Lord, we pray this morning that you would open up our hearts to your word. In Jesus' name, we all said, amen. So this week, last or on Oh, man, my days are confused. I'm just like my daughter. She kept thinking every day was Sunday, and so it finally came. But uh, this past week, we celebrated Christmas, and we celebrated the birth of Jesus. And the scriptures tell us a decent amount about the birth of Jesus. We know a lot about Jesus, um, his birth, and we know up till about age two, we know that King Herod tried to have um, Jesus murdered, and his family had to escape to, um, in order to, to save his life. But from the ages of two to the ages of 30, we actually don't know a whole lot about what was happening in Jesus' life. In fact, it troubled some people, so around 200, 300 um, AD, about 150, 200 years after Jesus was born, um, some people tried to fill in the gaps of what the teenage years looked like for Jesus, what, what Jesus' upbringing looked like, and supposedly what may have happened. And so there was a book called The Gospel of Thomas that they call it the infancy of Jesus, and they have some stories about Jesus from when he was a child, Um, some of them endearing and cute, some of them quite scary. One of them being that Jesus made doves out of clay and molded them, and then he made them come to life, and they were all able to fly, um, and he made them into real doves. Another one was Jesus was in school, as to so to say, and they were, Jesus was responding to the answers and to the questions and correcting his teachers, and so one teacher was baffled and confused and didn't understand and was frustrated by Jesus. Another one rebuked him for just being a boy and saying, how dare you talk back to me and how dare you, you know, a student talk back to the teacher. And so according to the Gospel of Thomas says that Jesus cursed them. Uh, and then one teacher stood amazed at Jesus' teaching and understanding, and it says that Jesus blessed them because they responded nicely to Jesus. One other one, and my personal favorite, was that uh, Mary and Joseph were having some conflict with their neighbors regarding Jesus, and so because the neighbors were giving Mary and Joseph strife, Jesus decided to blind the neighbors. Um, And so obviously, the book is um, falsely accredited to Thomas because it was written 200 years after Thomas was even alive, and we don't accept any of that as scriptures, but it really does beg the question, what was Jesus' teenage years or his upbringing or his life like? And there's actually only one story in Scripture that details anything between the age 2 and the age of 30, and that is what we are going to look at today. And so we will jump right in. We're starting in chapter 2, and we will start in verse 41. Every year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. So we have Mary and Joseph being um, good and pious and religious parents that all the adults um, were supposed to make the trek to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast, um, Passover, tabernacle, and all of that. And so we see that here Mary and Joseph are making the trek um, to go celebrate the, in Jerusalem from Passover. They lived in Nazareth. They're headed from Nazareth to Jerusalem to celebrate. It says, when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. And so they're probably taking Jesus along. Here he is, a 12-year-old boy. And next year, at the age of 13, 14, he's about to enter manhood, his bar mitzvah, so to speak. And so they're taking Jesus along probably to get him trained and accustomed to what was going to happen at Passover. 
um, because he was about to enter in and be an adult and be a participant himself. And so Mary and Joseph, wanting to be good parents, wanting to show their son their way, have invited Jesus along to the feast. And it says, after the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Everyone who heard Jesus was amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? The King James says, didn't you know that I had to be about my father's business? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. And then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And so here's Jesus. Um, They're at the Passover, they celebrate the feast, and they're there, and they're about ready to pack up and head home. It's kind of like ending Christmas vacation uh, for you teenagers and having to head back to school. Um, It's like that. No one likes when it comes to an end or when you have to, you know, conclude your Christmas holidays and you know that Monday's coming and you got to go back to work tomorrow after having a week off. And so they pack up their belongings and they are headed back home. And now for any of you that have been parents to teenagers and you have had the, hey mom or hey dad, I need this for school tomorrow, and it's 11 p.m., (laughs) and all stores are closed, and you have that type of miscommunication. Or if you have the, hey, mom and dad, I need to go to this person's house, um, and it's, say, well, when do you need to go there? Well, it starts in 15 minutes. Um, Or if you've ever had that type of miscommunication where it just doesn't seem like it's getting through, rest assured that you aren't the only one. Mary and Joseph had this same type of miscommunication with Jesus because they had fully planned on heading back home and going about their journey back, and Jesus had other plans. And it says that Mary and Joseph were unaware of those plans. So there was some miscommunication there. Um, And so before we start to think that Mary and Joseph were horrible parents and you would want to call CPS on them and report them, most likely um, they were traveling, it says, with relatives and friends, and they were in a caravan of sorts, and so Jesus was probably doing what any other 12-year-old boy would do, try to avoid his parents as much as possible, and was spending time with his friends, and so Mary and Joseph just assumed he was probably along, he just didn't want to be with us, per se. And so it says that Mary and Joseph traveled on for an entire day before realizing that Jesus was not with them. Now, if you've ever been a parent and you've ever had that moment where you're in a grocery store or a shopping mall or a public place and you are looking around and you cannot find your child and that moment of panic sets in and your heart starts racing and you start jumping to all the worst conclusions, um, you'd have a feeling of what Mary and Joseph were going through. I myself, um, this past October, Mel was here at the church for a women's event and I decided that I was going to trek with um, Bryson, Emery, and Asher to truck and tractor day at Winnether and enjoy the scenery. And so we're making our way through seeing some trucks and tractors, and there are some young um, boys and girls climbing a tree and other ones that were pulling themselves up by a rope. That was pretty cool. I was trying to convince Bryce that this would be a good endeavor for him to try. And what I assumed was that Bryce and Emery and Asher were all there looking and watching as I was. 
And so I look to the right, there's Bryce. I look to the left, there's Emery. And then you do the double glance, that way, that way, and no Asher. Um, and so you think, all right, well, I'm just going to do a quick scan. So I scan this way, I scan this way, and this way, and Asher is nowhere within this open parking lot, so to speak, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness. Um, it was all of 30 seconds, and you know how your mind starts to race, like someone grabbed him, someone snatched him, you know, he's lost, he's gone, and panic sets in, right? And it feels like an eternity. And so I'm starting to do the look, and I'm starting to walk around, and other parents are starting to recognize the fear and the worry on my face, and then finally, I just walk in between two fire trucks, and there's Asher with his hands in his pocket, just looking up at the fire trucks, um, completely unaware that his father was looking for him, unaware that he was separated from his family, um, just having a good old time. But so if you're one of those parents that have, you know, maybe lost your kid for a period of time or a moment of time, I feel better because I lost Asher for all of a minute. Um, they lost Jesus for... They didn't realize Jesus was missing for an entire day. Um, so, Jesus is missing, and they set out on a journey. So, mind you, they had traveled one day away from Jerusalem. So, now they had to trek back an entire day just to make it back to the city to look for him. And just think about the things that are going through their mind. Did he join another caravan? Where is he? Where did he sleep? Where did he go? What's going on? And so, they get back to Jerusalem, and it says it takes them three days of searching. Remember, there's no cell phone alert, that there's an Amber Alert for a missing child. There's no news media or internet to have it shared and reported and have anyone else looking for him. You know, there wasn't any milk carton to paint his face on so that people would understand that Jesus is missing. And so they probably set out like any parents, right? Where could he possibly be? Twelve-year-old boy, anywhere that there's food, we're going to look, all right? <laughs> Um, you know, the malls, the local hangouts, anywhere where there's, you know, maybe other teenagers or teenage girls or video games or anything like that. And basically, obviously those things weren't around in biblical times, just in case you're unsure of that. Um, but they are probably looking for this, boy, where is he? could he be? And imagine the torment and the agony and the things that they're experiencing and thinking, oh my goodness, we've just lost the Son of God. <laughs> um, and alas, they decide to check the temple. And from the sounds of it, um, it's probably a desperation search. We searched everywhere else. We looked everywhere else. You know, maybe he's in the temple. Maybe that's where he is. We haven't looked there. Um, let's go there. And when they arrive at the temple, what they find is they find their 12-year-old son. They find their boy. And not only is he sitting there and listening and soaking in the teachings of these Pharisees, these masters, think PhD, top-level um, Harvard grads, you know, teachers of the law, but they find that Jesus is not only asking them questions, but he's giving insight, probably insight and wisdom that these people have never heard before, probably things that were leaving them, it says in the scriptures, astonished and amazed at what this 12-year-old boy could do. Kind of funny because in 20 years that these would be the same people that would turn on Jesus and be angry and frustrated at his teachings, but when he's 12, it probably was cute and astonishing and amazing. And so too were his parents. They saw it, and they were amazed. But then Mary, as any loving and concerned mother would do, um, states the very feeling, the very experience of agony and wondering and confusion and the misery as they search. Boy, what are you doing? Don't you realize what you've put us through? Don't you realize what we've had to do in order to find you? And Jesus responds 
not with, I'm sorry, Mom, or whoops, forgot to text you, (laughs) or, you know, don't you track my location? Don't you follow me? Don't you know where I was at? Or, oh, hey, you know, I thought I told you, sorry. He asks the question, why were you even looking for me? As if, duh, like, why would you even be searching? He says, why would you be looking for me? Don't you know that I would be in my father's house? Where else would you look for a boy? Where else would you look for a child? Yet, in his father's house. And it's here at the age of 12 that we realize and we start to gain an understanding that Jesus has an, an acute understanding of who he is, who he belongs to, and what his mission is that he was about his father's business. Yes, on the human side, was he the son of Mary and Joseph? Yes. And it's where we start to see that this man was, or Jesus was fully human, fully man, but he knew that he belonged to God. He knew that his allegiance, that his avow, that his commitment was to be about his father's business, was to be in his father's presence, and was to learn of his father. And so not only was he fully God, but he was fully, or fully man, but he was also fully God. A lot of other heresies that we won't get into too much, but it's like he wasn't a mixture of both. He wasn't half man, half God, um, real quick, because you can't have that. Uh, If you have half God, then you've lessened and cheapened and weakened God, so you cannot have that. Um, So he was fully God and fully man. And if you have just half man, half God, then what you get is some sort of superhuman. Um, And so he wasn't that. And so he maintained his full deity while also walking in humanity. And he was committed to the cause of Christ. I love what the King James says, that he was about his father's business. He knew what his mission was. He knew who he belonged to, and he knew what he had to do from the age of 12, that he was in his father's house hearing the teaching, learning how to fulfill the will of his father, that he's first and foremost God's son. And it's where we see this teen that although he is of human parents and though he took on human flesh and he became fully human without losing any of his deity, here he is, Jesus, experiencing temptations, the emotions and the feelings, yet remaining sinless by following his father's footsteps. It's here where you could turn to your teenager and reprimand them and say, see, when Jesus was 12, he wasn't playing video games, making TikToks and watching YouTube. He was reading his Torah and learning from his religious leaders. But it's not just a reality for teenagers to learn or to understand. It's a lesson for all of us. It shows that Jesus knew his priority and that his priority was to be a son. The son that we celebrated last week was about his father's business. He was hungry to learn, to know, and his desire was to be with his father. And it should cause a heart check and a pause in us as we turn to the new year and we come to celebrate um, this Wednesday the turning of a year. The new year is often marked and hallmarked by um, new ambitions, new desires. We see them almost as the turning of a page, you know. If 2019 has been bad, we say that we can close that book and we can start afresh and new in 2020. It's why we make commitments and vows to, I'm going to eat healthier, or I am going to exercise more, I'm going to spend more time with family, I am going to have more leisure time, and we make all of these vows and these commitments and these things that we want to prioritize in the new year. But I would stop and I would challenge us to take a look at what is on our list, what's on the top of our priorities, what's first and foremost in our life. Is it our jobs, our families, our leisure time? 
take a look at the things that we plan around, that we build our schedules around, that we shape our time around, the things that we commit ourselves to the most. What drives us? What motivates us? What is the thing that keeps us going? And if someone were to look at your life and they were to ask that question, or where are they most likely to find you, or what are they about, you know? If someone were to look at my life and say, what is Ryan about? I would aim that the goal of every Christian and the endeavor of every Christian was that Jesus' answer and lived reality should be the aim of every believer. I'm about my Father's business. I'm about doing the will of my Father. The man that says in Philippians that he did not consider it equal to God, yet humbled himself to a cross that emptied himself. The one that became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. The one that walked the mandate and the mission and the fulfillment of the Father's will should also be the heart cry of every single one of us. Lord, I want to do your will. I want to be about your business. I want to be in your presence. Jesus, both family expectations and family thoughts, says I have a devotion and I have a commitment to the Lord God and to my Father and the plans and the purposes and the destiny that he has for me. And that's what I want. And he understood it from the age of 12. Hebrews 1.3 tells us this, tells us that Jesus is the full representation of God, that he is the exact representation of God. And so that in what we see in Jesus and what we see in his character and his nature and his actions and his words and who he is, is it's a reflection of the Father. And so when we see Jesus outperforming miracles and out um, saving a wedding by turning water into wine or healing people or setting the blind people free or setting the captives free or meeting the woman at the well and setting her free from her shame and her sin and forgiving her, when we see him welcoming the children unto himself, when we see him teaching about serving and giving to the poor, when we see him dwelling and living with sinners, and forgiving people of their sins. It's not because it was Jesus' prerogative and Jesus' mind and he made it up. It was because he saw the Father doing it. And what he saw the Father do, he did. Now, my favorite Christmas movie would happen to be, on the serious side, It's a Wonderful Life. And I love It's a Wonderful Life because in the movie, um, George Bailey, the main character, is coming to a place where he wants to travel, he wants to see the world, he wants to get his college degree, make lots of money, and not be bound by the same confines of his father who ran the old building and loan. His father didn't have much money, um, but in the movie we see him as a good and honest man that gave money to families to help them build their own place, have their own house, didn't charge people when they were late with payment, even such to the point that it was at his own detriment, that he was shortchanged, that he was shortcome, but he did it out of the goodness of his heart. And so in the movie it comes to a point where George's father dies And George sticks around for three months to kind of keep it together, and he's about to head off to college and finally fulfill his his mission, his will, and what he wants to do. And the villain in the movie, Potter, as you know it, says, you know what? This old building alone ain't making any money. It's time to close it down. It's time to close up shop. And so George, in the movie, I won't say it here, but he just goes on a rant, right, about the goodness of his father and what his father did and what his father was able to provide and, and the value in what his father did. And so we know that the board comes back to George and says, you know what, George, they want to keep the building and loan open, but they want you to run it. And so it's at that moment that George begrudgingly says, you know what, I will. And he goes on um, doing about his father's business, doing business the way that his father did, making sure that people had homes, making sure that people were taken care of. 
And in the same way, in a small analogy, this is what, the thought, this is what Jesus was about, that he knew his mission, he knew the purpose, but he, except he didn't do it begrudgingly or unwillingly, that it satisfied him to walk out the will of his Father. And this isn't just a one-off saying that he said um, one time in Luke. This was a common theme found throughout the scriptures. We see it in John 34. Right after Jesus has met the Samaritan woman at the well, and he has set her free, and he has given her living water, and she's out testifying and preaching, Jesus' disciples come back to him because they had been out looking for food. And they bring Jesus some food and say, you know, Jesus must be hungry. Here it is. And this is what Jesus responds. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And Jesus in a saying is saying, the thing that sustains me, the thing that carries me, the thing that brings me nourishment, the thing that satisfies me isn't the physical food, but it's to do the Father's will, it's to do the Father's work. He would go on afterwards to say that the, you know, the pastures are full, the fields are full, but the workers are few. And what Jesus is saying is that what what nourishes me, what strengthens me is this, is that I got a job to do and that I have a people to save and fulfilling that is the thing that drives me. Jesus in John chapter five, one chapter over says, very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. And so Jesus' very actions and the very things that he does are just mimicked because he sees them in the Father. Another one says, so, so Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me to speak. And so Jesus is saying, my very own teachings weren't my own creation. I didn't make them up. I didn't come up with them. They were because I saw the Father speaking them, and the words that came out of my mouth were of the Father, and they were in submission to the Father. And lastly, before going to the cross and before taking on our sin and our shame, we see that in a moment of personal struggle on the human side that Jesus is wrestling. Lord, if you will, please let this cup pass. Please let this moment pass. But alas, what does he exclaim? Not my will, but thine be done. It's a reincurring theme that not only he models, but that he also teaches for us to follow, that when he's teaching his disciples how to pray and what to pray, and hey, when you address God, and when you, if you don't know what to pray and you need to know what to say to him, address him like this, our Father, right, in that beautiful moment right there, our Father, in the same way that Jesus was able to call him his Father and that he was the Son of God, he teaches us to say, you know what, our Father, that he's our Father, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so he's teaching disciples, it's not about your will, it's not about what Ryan wants to see, it's not about Ryan's desires or the fulfillment of Ryan's wishes, it's about this. God, what is your purpose? What is your kingdom work? What is your will? Lord, I want to see your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. I want to see your will be done above what Ryan wishes and what Ryan wants to see, above my wealth and my glory and my fame, Lord. Let me walk out your will and your purpose and your way. That's what I love about John the Baptist in John chapter 3. After Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist, Jesus then goes about baptizing others. And so some followers of John the Baptist say, Hey, John, don't you see that guy over there, Jesus? You baptized him. And now he, he, he's got the audacity and the nerve to start baptizing people himself. 
And what doesn't rise up in John the Baptist isn't that moment is jealousy or selfishness that says, hey, how dare him? How dare he think he can do what I can do? You know, doesn't he know that I'm the baptizer? Doesn't he know that's my responsibility? Doesn't he know that that is my job? It says that he looks at Jesus and he says, don't you see the one that I have prepared the way for, the one that I have prophesied about, the one that I have come, and my will and my mission was to make way for him. And the bride belongs to the bridegroom, and the bridegroom has come. And so John doesn't say, you know what, that's my bride, that's my people, that's my following, it's not about me, and he doesn't get insecure because, oh, now Jesus is baptizing, and now he has some competition on the way. John says, my joy is now complete because the bride and the bridegroom are there. The one that you were made for, the one that you were purposed for, the one that you were destined for has arrived. And it brought him, his joy was now complete. What's that saying? That John's happiness was to see Jesus being lifted up. Where he says the famous words in John chapter 3 verse 30, it says, you need more of him and less of me. Another version says that he must increase and I must decrease. And John's saying, now that Jesus has come and now that he's here, it's about him, is that you need more of his teaching, more of his wisdom, more of his presence, more of what he is in your life than you do of me. And wouldn't that be the cry of every believer? Lord, that if we want to see God's kingdom come and we want to see his will and his purpose and his mission walked out here on this earth, then my goodness, it needs more of him and less of me. Emmanuel Church doesn't need more of a leader or more of a teacher or more of Ryan. It needs more of Jesus and less of me. Our schools, our workplaces need more of him, less of us. Sylvia Evans, respected prophet and teacher of Elam, used to teach this. She borrowed it from Stephen Covey, a popular um, positive thinking, seven ways to highly effective whatever. She took the phrase and applied it to Christianity and said this, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And it's a saying, what do we, we need to know? The main thing in this life, the thing that we should prioritize, the core at the center of our life, the main thing is Jesus. And our main thing and our priority and our goal and our endeavor in life is to keep the main thing, the main thing, to keep him first and foremost, to set him above everything else in our hearts. And then let everything else that we do and our actions flow from him and his will. That's why Jesus says you must die to yourself daily and pick up his cross and follow him. How many times do we go days, weeks, months in our routines with the busyness of life and we walk down and then we finally get to a place where something comes to a halt and we realize that we haven't kept the main thing, the main thing, that we've placed other things above him and that we've given way to other things, we've pursued relationships, jobs, money, whatever, you name it, and something else has taken priority in our heart. It's likely to me why the Proverbs said, said this, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Because if you don't guard your heart and you don't protect your heart, there'll be a lot of things that vie and compete to be, set, to be a priority in your life, and that will try to trump and take the place that Christ is to be seated upon. And so that if you don't guard against that, if you don't protect against that, if you don't, aren't watchful against that, something else will rule and reign on the throne that Jesus was made for and will prioritize your life, the thing that belongs to God and that belongs to the Father. 
So what was this work and what was this business and what was the mission of the father and son? We see in Genesis that they were together in Genesis 1, 26. It says, let us, right? Let the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit, that's what the us means, let us make man in our image, right? We were made in the image of God to spread the glory of God, to demonstrate the nature and the character of God, to represent God here on this earth. But we see in the New Testament that the Father and the Son were working together in this and that our sin had separated us from that, that our sin had gotten us off, our destiny, our path, and our future. And so the Father and the Son were in the business of the salvation and the redemption of his people. And Jesus fulfilled that to the very cross so that I could be restored, so that you could be restored back to your purpose and to your destiny and to your mission. And so I want to give you just three ways um, in which you guys can be about the Father's business, in which you can set the Lord as your priority, as 2020, that your mission, that your goal, that the thing that you want is to see more of Jesus and less of you, and three ways in which we can do that. First, you have to set it aside in your own hearts and minds that it has to become a personal practice and discipline that I am going to yield and submit myself to Christ. What's the first commandment and the greatest commandment that Jesus taught you? You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all of your strength. Your entire being must love the Lord with everything that you have. And you first must make a personal commitment in your own hearts and your own desires that this, Lord, I want to see more of you in my life. I need more of you in my life. And maybe you're not there. Maybe that isn't your desire. And then it starts there. Lord, give me the desire to place you first and foremost in my life. I don't even have the desire to place you first, so Lord, would you give me that desire because I recognize that I need you at the center. Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph. Rhetorical question, but someone can answer, right? Were Mary and Joseph sinners? Yes. Their salvation, their deliverance, who was their savior? Jesus. Think about that for a second. You know what it says? This is what I love. In verse 51, it says, Then he went down to Nazareth, right? Then Jesus went down to Nazareth with his parents, and he was obedient to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. This was the Savior. This was the sinless one. This was the perfect one. This is the one that was fully God. And yet he submitted himself, and yet he was obedient to his sinful human parents. He yielded himself and he submitted himself to the Father's will and to his mission. That makes me stop in my tracks and go, my goodness, Ryan. <laughs> I, better bow my, I better bow myself and make a vow and commitment to yield myself and to submit myself to the perfect risen Savior and make it a priority in my heart that I yield to him. Number two, when Jesus was found, he was found in the temple and he was listening to the teachers of the Torah and responding to their teachings. And so point number two is this. First, you have to set it in your hearts and your minds and make a commitment. Number two, you better commit yourself to some learning and some teaching. Where was Jesus? Where did he learn? Where did he gain his knowledge? By listening to the religious leaders. This is a common theme and a common... um, Paul writes this to Timothy. I have it right here says this, the Spirit says that in the latter times, some people will abandon the faith and they will follow deceiving spirits and they will, things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared by a hot iron. They forbid people to marry. They order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. 
For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Paul then says, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. How is, Paul, or how is Paul encouraging Timothy to stand against the teachings, the false teachings and the things that would vie and come to try to steal and rob from what God has done? You gotta stand upon the teachings. And so sometimes we gotta find ourselves in a way where, you know what, where we make it a personal commitment to study this and to learn this and to be in a place where we're hearing solid teaching and where we're being edified and encouraged and equipped by the word so that we can know the mission and know what to fulfill and know what it is to do. Number two is to find yourself um, a place that where your heart is being taught so that you can understand what it is, who he is, what his nature is like. And lastly, um, number three is this. It says, do not forsake the fellowship of the brethren. Hebrews 11.25 says that. Do not forsake the fellowship of the brethren. Is that you must find yourself in a community of believers in the church, so to say. And I know that's self-serving for a pastor to say, come to church and to be in the church. But listen, these aren't just Christian platitudes, you know? Reading your Bible, praying, and coming to church aren't just good things and aren't just Sunday school things. They are the lifeblood of how Jesus is moving and operating today. I left out in point number two, and I don't want to miss it. Commit yourself to some learning and teaching um, is that you also have to set your time for prayer. Right, when Jesus was drained, when Jesus was overwhelmed on the human side of things, what does it say? That he often got away and spent time with the Father. There's one where it says that he even got on the boat and he left the crowds and that he left the masses so that he could be recharged, equipped, and he could be reminded of his purpose and what it, he was called here to do, and he spent time with the Father. So in your learning and teaching, you also have to have time of prayer. But also, you need to find yourself in a community of believers that are challenging you, that are encouraging you, and that are reminding you of your purpose, destiny, and mission. Because I doubtful that many of us are sitting around our Tuesday break rooms at lunch and being encouraged, equipped, and reminded to follow God and to live for God and to love your wife as, you know, um, it's been five years since I worked outside of the church, so, but if I sat in my break room, I think the only thing that would be encouraged was um, how many cigarettes can you smoke um, in this 30-minute break? You know, how much fun can we have this weekend? How much beer am I going to drink? How much parties can I go to? And how much can I harass someone else until it's funny, until I make them angry, right? Those were the things that happened around my break room and the things that I was encouraged to do. But so we need to find ourselves in a place where we're being encouraged, we're being equipped, and we're being reminded of our purpose, who we are, what we are here for, and we're with the fellowship of other people that are loving the Lord so that we can worship together and be equipped and charged to go fulfill the mission and the work that Christ has given us to do. I would also like to just note real quickly on just a little side sermon that this passage does teach us something about children and those of us that are parents or those of us that teach teenagers or work in our children's ministry or have young children themselves is this, is that they're able to learn and to know the scriptures. What does it say about Jesus? That he grew in stature and in wisdom and in favor with God. And it's a reminder that if we have young children and we're responsible for that in the least is that we must be teaching them the scriptures and we must be building their lives upon the scriptures and we must be pouring into them 
Proverbs 4, verse 3 says this. The writer says, For I too was a son to my father, still tender and cherished by my mother. And then he taught me, and then he said to me, Take hold of my words with all of your heart. Keep my commands, and you will live. And it's a reminder for those of us that have the opportunity and the blessing to um, raise young people or to teach young people is to teach them the scriptures and to teach them the word because they're able to follow it and they're able to grow and it becomes a foundation and a building block for their life. And Jesus was, sometimes we think, well, Jesus was fully God, so of course that he had the, the in and of course that he was able to do it, but he also had a commitment on the human side to follow and to be in his father's house and to learn and to grow in the teaching. And I think it was in that that gave him the power to turn away sin because he knew what his father's about and he knew what that was and he understood the heart and the mission and he was able to set aside all the temptations. And so as we conclude, my challenge for us in this new year as we celebrate the new year that we would conclude by offering ourselves that just as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit work together to see the kingdom of God and to deliver us from our salvation, that the cry of our hearts would be exactly that. Lord, all I owe is to you. All I want is you, is you. Your work, your kingdom will be my priority and my goal, and it'll be the thing that I build my life upon. You know, how I love my wife, how I raise my kids, how I interact with my neighbors. Lord, I want you to be at the center. I want you to be at the core. I want more of you and less of me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Jesus asked the rhetorical question. He says, don't you know? Don't you know that you are not your own? Don't you know that you don't belong to you? Don't you understand that you have been bought with a price, right? That you belong, that you're a possession, right? Like Rini said with the yo-yo, right? That you belong to the Father and that you were purchased by his blood. And so it says that your bodies are now a temple of the Holy Spirit, and living and dwelling in you. So would we live that way? That it's not about Ryan, it's not about Melanie, it's not about whoever, it's about him and seeing his will and his work and his kingdom come in our lives. And so if I conclude, um, I would just want to read a prayer that Billy Graham prayed uh, a couple of New Year's ago. And so if I could ask you guys to stand. And we'll conclude this way. Our Father and our God, as we stand at the beginning of this new year, we confess our need of your presence and your guidance as we face the future. We all have hopes and expectations for the year that is ahead of us, but you alone knows what it holds, and only you can give us the strength and the wisdom we will need to meet its challenges. God, so help us to humbly put our hands into your hand and to trust you and to seek your will for our lives during this coming year. In the midst of life's uncertainties and the days ahead, assure us that the certainty of your unchanging love. In the midst of life's inevitable disappointments and heartaches, help us turn to you for the stability and the comfort we will need. In the midst of life's temptations and pull of our stubborn self-will, help us not to lose our way, but to have the courage to do what is right in your sight, regardless of the cost. And in the, in the midst of our daily preoccupations and pursuits, open our eyes to the sorrows and the injustices of the hurting world. Help us to respond with compassion and sacrifice to those who are friendless and in need. 
May our constant prayer be that of the ancient psalmist. Teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees, then I will keep them to the end. So, Father, we pray that that would be our mission, our heart, and our desire, just as you, at the age of 12, desired to be in your Father's house, and there was nowhere else that you would want to be. Father, let that be our heart cry, that your will, your work, and your way, God, would be the thing that we desire. Equip us, Lord, bless us, and keep us in your presence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.